So, <laughs> nice to be with you all again. We had a nice discussion yesterday on a special occasion. Are there any questions today about anything? A question uh, regarding your, your latest book. Mm-hmm. And uh, given the audience, I'd like to have a little more background on what led you to writing this book. I heard that you were, took 12 years in writing it. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true, no. In 12 years, let's see, what is it now, 2016, I think my Bhagavad Gita edition came out in 2000, was it? Yeah. Did my Gita come out in 2000? 2000. And after that I wrote a commentary on Gopal Tapani. So after the Gita, Gopal Tapani, and then commentary on um, Chikshastakam. Remember this book, Sacred Preface. So, um, it took me a while to write the book, that's true. Um, but part of the reason for that is one of the, one of the reasons is that I started the book with a different um, intention in mind than the life that it took on of its own. Um, and that was with the detention to write a short uh, kind of study book for an online course on Chaitanya Charitamrita that I thought would be um, something I could uh, do. And so I wrote the first chapter like that, and then the second chapter I started to write like that. But then it, it was too restrictive of a format given the nature of the subject, um, because the book is, is, is a commentary on a commentary on a preface to a book, <laughs> which is peculiar. Um, but the, um, and it's an auto-commentary by the author of the preface, uh, uh, the author of the book and, and the preface, he has his own extended commentary on the uh, the Mangala Charan is a Sanskrit word, really, that I've translated as sacred preface. To, with it, it literally means something like invoking auspiciousness. So, um, at any rate, I found the, that that format of writing the topic was too rich. I guess I want to say to refine, con- confine myself to writing in a limited way about it, and not allowing room for uh, insight and feelings that would arise in a context of writing and contemplating the subject matter. And so uh, somewhere in the second chapter I kind of just abandoned the format and just started to write and give in to all of my um, feelings and insights as they as they came forward and so forth. And then I just kept writing and I thought, where's this going to go here? And, and I thought, I better at least put some limits on it because the whole book is quite long <laughs> and a commentary on the whole book would be extensive so I decided to write a commentary then on the 14 verses 
that constitute the, uh, the sacred preface of the Mangalacharan. And, um, and then I had to go back and rewrite the first chapter and a good part of the second chapter to fit in with the rest of the, the, the spirit and feeling of the, of the other, other chapters. Um, and so that didn't delay the book too much, a li- little bit. But uh, the fact is that um, as time has gone on in my life here, um, I started our mission with a view to write and uh, serve a reading audience and congregation rather than to collect people. Um, And... Inevitably, some people are collected, <laughs> as it turns out, by that, and uh, and so you have to tender to them and help them, and and so on, and so gradually we've grown, and I started that here. Uh, at a certain point, I think in 1999, I was I was uh, had started a mission in 1985, I think, with the blessings of Pujapatrida Marsh. And I uh, was doing different things in different places, and I started writing a magazine, um, which was a popular magazine at the time in the 80s. Um, but it was very consuming with deadlines and, and so forth, and uh, and uh, it was limited what you could you could say, and magazines don't have as enduring of a kind of a presence as a book does. So... At any rate, I started writing uh, books in probably 1990, something like 90, I think, maybe, yeah. And um, at, uh, at some point, I thought I should retire in a place that was corresponded with how my writing felt to people. And so I found this place, and, and that's what I did. But some people have come, and... And uh, and we've expanded to other places, so we have other ashrams. And so, well, actually, I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is that I have found that I have other obligations and things to do that take away from being able to exclusively concentrate on writing, which in which case, if I had done, the book would have been done quicker. So the reason the book took so long is is one of the reasons, probably the largest reason, is that I have other responsibilities uh, so uh, we should dispel the myth that you know the book was so extraordinary that it took him twelve years to write it or something like that. Although it's a reasonably uh, good book given the audience that it's uh, intended for and its purpose. Um, that said, uh, the subject matter is is, is rather uh, uh, deep, and then to present it in modern times in terms of current philosophical and thought and scientific thought and so forth um, is a challenge and so I that's my nature I try to do that I, it's very core material from the tradition but it's um, considered in light of current thought and that's what somebody in my position is, is supposed to do to keep the thing alive and vital and, and so forth um, and so there are were some challenging um, Areas that when you you know when you take a book and a conception of the world, um, 
of hundreds of years ago, even while the core ideas are very um, profound and have relevance in the world today, they're also packaged and presented 500 years ago, as this book was, and at a time where even, as I point out in the book, the understanding and the view of matter is different than what is thought of in contemporary times today. Not entirely different, but um, and this was before the scientific revolution and so forth, the book Chaitanya Charitamrita was, was written. So people might tend to dismiss the, the substance of the text given what uh, what appear, might appear to a modern person to be baggage of times gone by, uh, ideas of the world that are have been proven to be untrue and, and so forth. So to bring all that out and show its relevance and uh, bring the essence of it out um, and to enter to some extent into the times also when it was written and see the value of how things were thought of at that time and so forth. It was, it was a, it's a challenge to do that. That's pretty much what I do, as you, as you know, those of you who listen to me. Um, but uh, some parts of the book were challenging in that regard. The, the section about Kali Yuga, I spent a long time on that. It's in the, I think it's in the fourth chapter. A uh, long time on that. Uh, I wrote it several times and I sent it to one scholar too at, at Berkeley who was a, had written some things on, on yugas, the cyclical time of India and so forth, to see what he thought and a couple other people I shared it with and so forth. And nobody gave me anything really substantial in terms of feedback other than they thought it was interesting and, and, and so on. So that was good. <laughs> but anyway, uh, some aspects of the book like that, took, uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge to, to present the concepts in a way that will be able to catch a modern person's attention. And... Um, and do away with the what might be a red flag or a red light or what you know <laughs> kind of ideas. Um, so it takes some some time. And uh, but if I had focused exclusively on it, then it would have been quicker. So I'm jotting around these days to different places, and and we have you know this is one of three ashrams that we have, and and uh, they have taken up you know, a fair amount of my thoughts that they will run nicely and that all of you will be well situated <laughs> and, and so forth. Fortunately for us, our ashrams are becoming, uh, developing nicely with uh, members who really, living uh, on board, residents I should say, who really seem to identify with the, with them and, um, and feel um, psychologically suited for kind of lifestyle, so that does um, give me a little more time to uh, to do uh, writing projects, so I, I want to try to come out with books a little more quickly <laughs> um, in, in the future, one or two a year would be ambitious. Um, there's a, a lot of my um, uh, talks that I've given that have a lot of material in them that some of my students have transcribed, and I have um, a 
that that's an art to transcribe that and then to take the spoken word and kind of turn it into the written word. Um, I have a book like that that's uh, needs my input that has been taken, transcribed, and somewhat um, edited, I should say, in such a way that the that the that the, that the uh, the spoken word starts starts to sound like the written word. Being a writer, it's it's just not the same, you know. If you, however well you transcribe it and edit it, it's not the same as if I sat down and wrote the thoughts out myself. So it has a little bit of a different feel, but it's, the points are there, nonetheless. So I'm looking at that right right now. It's, uh, it's talks I gave on the uh, what is considered to be the four essential verses of the Bhagavad Purana, which is a very central text to our our tradition it's a it's a book of 18,000 uh, verses so four of them are said to be the seed out of which the whole thing comes i gave some lectures on that in Madhavan in costa rica a few years ago at uh, when it's quite a bit of depth on that so i'm i'm looking at at turning that into a into a book relatively quickly <laughs> we'll see uh, it requires some um, besides the what has been transcribed, some extended um, writing, I think, on my part about the Bhagavatam itself and the way, the way it's composed, the nature of its composition, and um, the intentions of the author, and this kind of type of thing to bring people into it. It's a very fascinating text. So, anyway, so I hope to. Uh, right now, I'm looking at. at bringing that out um, this year. We'll see. So, yeah. I mostly ask that because a lot of the points in the book are found in so many of your classes. So I was just thinking if it was something that you were writing on the side as you continued to give classes and whatnot. Because I could find paragraphs. I was just like, oh, that's one class. You know, with well, I was lecturing on different books and then the points that I'm writing about they naturally come up you know to mind when you're talking and and uh, so so those of you who have been listening to me for a couple of years you'll find in the book many points that you've heard but you, they're all put together in one place in such a way that it has a very powerful impact I would imagine and those who aren't familiar with my writing even if they are members of our lineage and so forth will will, will find the book um Challenging in a very in a, in a positive way, I think, very positive way, make them cause them really think in ways that they haven't about the tradition that they're involved in, which is good. Yeah, so it doesn't so their practice doesn't become mechanical, and so they don't think I, I know all that. <laughs> it's not so easy to know all that. <laughs> Books are are such that uh, the sacred texts are, are just full of layers and layers and layers of, of meaning. And so there's a, there's why we have a, a, a tradition of commentary for hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, each generation should have a full commentary on all the texts, not only to speak of them in light of modern considerations and thoughts and arguments and whatnot, but also just in terms of the depth of the text and what, it, what, it's, what it's saying. You, you can't really say enough about it. You, you, you finish a book like this and then you think, oh, good, oh, shoot, you know, I should have done this, I should have written that, I should have... Hmm. So 
that's a problem. You have to finish it at some point, but you really can never finish it, so there's a necessity for, for other, other books, I guess, is a way to look at it. But, but yeah, we've had a strong tradition of commentary and theology for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's important to keep that up, to keep it fresh, and, and, um, and to further, as I say, explore the depth of it good for practitioners. And without that, then persons can think they've understood it and and their practice can be a little become a little mechanical and and um, and whereas if their practice is deep then they have the ability to bring that out themselves, read it and so forth, but then they should teach. <laughs> so not everybody can do that. And so we need some persons to help us in that regard. That's very important. That's the whole system of, of what we call the parampara. It means one after another, parampara. So one guru, one teacher, and then after he departs, and then another should be there to continue the the uh, tradition and, and um, tradition of commentary. What else? Yes. Today about uh, finding inspiration from uh, kind of individual spiritual practice or uh, meditation, mantra, something you do by yourself versus uh, uh, finding inspiration from connecting with others. Yeah. And I was just wondering uh, if you can maybe talk about like, the connection between those two the dependence um, on others for individual practice? Or? Well, in, in a way, spiritual practice is, is, is individual. Hmm? And um, it's not just about joining a group. Uh, it's about being an individual, really, and uh, kind of flying one's own plane at some, some point. Um, um, it's about it's about you and your practice and um, and perfecting it and so forth. Um, we are all involved here, for example, for ourselves in a sense, not in a selfish way, because if our sense of self is not a selfish one, that's <laughs> taking from the environment, but but rather. Um, it's a, a serving sense of self rather than an exploiting sense of self, then it would be the interest in the interest of everyone for us to, every individual to pursue that. Hmm? So if I pursue my sense of self, thinking of myself as, as a unit of serving capacity, then I, I become, um, the more I realize that, and others do, the nicer the world becomes and the more readily the world problems are are dissolved because the, really the problems of the world are about the competition between people for what limited resources that are available. I mean, that's basically what's going on. We have a sense of necessity um, arising from our identification with matter. Even though we turn matter on, so to speak, consciousness, as I often say, is, is, um, is about value and meaning and purpose. Matter unto itself has no value, meaning, or purpose. We we give 
opinion to matter. The modern scientific uh, perspective, in the majority opinion, of course, is that matter has no, the reality has no qualities. It's only quantitative, and that everything's physical. And somehow or other, the brain gives rise to a mind, and there, there's qualities there, even though the brain is thought to be, and it is physical. So that's a quandary. You know, how can physical um, entity that give give rise to uh, experience and 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 so forth? So they have their ways of trying to sort that out, but it's a, it's a huge anomaly in, in modern science. And we, of course, simply disagree that we don't think that there's only physical reality. We think that there's both a physical and a psychic dimension to matter, and we think that there's something called consciousness itself that's ontologically different from matter altogether. And it lends itself by way of reflecting on subtle psychic matter. And then you have this dimension of mind that that takes on a quasi-subjective quality. And then you have the physical matter. And so people are psychological and physical but beyond that, they're, they're a self, they're an atma, that's, that's a unit of consciousness hmm? that, that is identified with matter, like you might identify with a um, computer program, like, say, um, what's the term? Virtual reality. Virtual reality or something like that. You really get plugged into it or something, like that, but you're actually just sitting in a chair and, you know, you're fine. Um, that, uh, so the self is something like that, and the whole idea of the Eastern spiritual traditions of Vedanta, like ours, is to realize the self and its prospect in life. Right. So, um, so to pursue that um, self to go inward, as we say often, go within or go without. If you just go without, obviously there's a couple of meanings to that, but if you just go without into the world, you end up without. Because you are a unit of consciousness and you don't know that you are, and you're trying to drive meaning and value from matter, trying to get happiness from matter. You think by adding something on to your life, you're going to become happier, but you never can really add anything on. Um, in a couple of senses, one in which you can't keep anything that you have. You don't really have it. Everything is constantly transforming before your eyes uh, and so forth. So it's it's futile. And um, from another point of view, uh, as well, consciousness never really touches matter. It just kind of identifies with matter. And... Um, so we don't add anything on. And at a certain point, someone might realize that by letting go of things, rather than trying to, f- trying to become happy, to realize you are a unit of happiness. Instead of trying to become secure, you realize that I am secure, I, I exist, I, I exist independently of time and space. So, I, mean, I have no beginning, I have no end. Um, so to understand these things theoretically is, gets, is gives us inspiration to pursue a path by which we could experience all that we are. And um, so everyone's in this for that. 
So it's an individual thing that you want to become, let's say, to use a word, enlightened. Hmm? And, of course, by doing that, while that may appear self-centered, and some people say, you're just living in the ashram up there in the mountains, you know, what about the world? You know, Well, the world is unfortunately uh, about often just, just the opposite. It's about the competition. It's about, because it's driven by the mistaken idea that I am the body or I am this psychology. And these are things that have needs then. Hmm? As I said, all material things are constantly in transformation. That includes our body. That includes our, our for example. So, to preserve it, we, we're, we, we, if that's our idea, then we've got to get to work. And we've got to struggle. And we may have to shoot somebody else. You have to kill to live, whether it's a bug or a plant or whatever. To live bodily, you have to kill somebody else. That's just the nature of the world. It's a very Darwinian, you know, perspective. And that's a, one living being is food for another, the Bhagavad says. And it's true. Hmm? You can't get around that. I mean, you could become a breatharian. You're a vegetarian, but what about a breatharian who lives only on breath? Still, even by breathing, you're killing microbes. And so there's just no way around it. It's the nature of the world. Hmm? And so, the attempt to arrive at perfect happiness or a perfect world in a world that this is the, 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 based on this principle is, is folly. So the idea is to transcend hmm, that, uh, that perception. Um, so that's good. Meanwhile, in the world, we're voting for this guy or that guy, or we're trying to change the world this way or that way, adjust, and, and so on and so forth. And um, in all of that, there's invariably some taking, even in the most philanthropic perspective. If it arises out of identification with a nation, state, or an ethnic ethnicity or something like that, then it's problematic. Hmm? You, want, you want to be philanthropic in the American way and be the best American, you could be the worst, uh, you know, if, if, let's say, if Donald Trump is elected and builds a wall, you know, you'd be the best American and Mexico would hate you. Hmm? Perhaps. Just to give an example. And it could go the other way if somebody else gets elected too. I mean, it's just nationalism is a, is a, is, is a, is a disease. Hmm? Um, Sexism, racism, um, and so forth. Bodily identification. So there are many symptoms of one problem. And then the whole problem is I've identified, I'm unit of consciousness, I've identified with matter. And so I'm busy trying to make something work that's just not going to work as well as I do. (laughs) As as myself. So while while this is about being self-interested, it's really about solving the problems of the world at the same time. It doesn't appear to be interested in solving the problems of the world because you're living up in the mountain here and you're just meditating. What are you doing for the world? What's the world doing is the question. Hmm? What's the problem? What's it doing? Hmm? And if everyone is, is competing with one another based on a sense of I'm American, I'm a woman, I'm a man, and I've got to assert myself. And, and in some cases, for example, women should, you know, struggle to, to have more uh, freedoms and equality than they do, 
But that in and of itself, being a, being a perfectly liberated woman, is not going to free you from reincarnation. You know, you're, you might be a man in your next life, you know, and a woman in the next one. So, you know, here we go. Just, you're, you're just you know, going around in, in circles here. Hmm? They're not bad things to improve the world, but you can only, it can only be improved to a certain extent. When you come to that conclusion and decide to become a transcendentalist, you don't really drop out of the world, in a sense, but you actually become the most significant co- contributor to the world, and you show by example that if everybody did this, then there would be no, there wouldn't be any such problems. I mean, there would be an abundance of resources comparatively, because hmm? we live rather simply here, hmm? um, profoundly, but simply, and and uh, and so on. So you could say, you could say, well, everybody can't live like that, and so the world's never going to end. That's that's also true. It's always going to be there. There's unlimited worlds, for that matter, of, of matter, universes, and so forth. And, uh, it's just a metaphysical reality. And, and, and so within reason, we try to improve the world, and we think that we are involved in something that, that, that has the greatest possibility to improve the world. If everyone would take it up, we know everybody won't take it up. But that doesn't stop us from from taking it up and solving the problem of the world. People want to solve the world's problem. World's problems, we want to solve the problem that is called the world. <laughs> uh, at the root. And to, and to educate people about that, to share our insight with others that they might move in that direction. And of course, let's say the whole world came to the conclusion that actually... What we are is, is, a, is a unit of consciousness, as I'm saying, and not matter. And there's actually a purpose in life, which is to transcend our identification with matter that keeps us taking birth as men and then a woman and a man and a woman and whatever, a Republican, Democrat, the next life or whatever. That's the goal. Now we have to go about it in some way that makes sense because we're attached and we've got our we may know something theoretically, but we're kind of like habitually somewhere else. And so we need to kind of come somewhere in between, right? So that people can have a theory and gradually move in the direction of it. But just to have the theory, just if the whole world, if all the leaders got together and said, here's what's really going on here, and all the philosophers came to the conclusion that that actually there's not matter is not all there is. There's something called consciousness and the goal of life is to pursue it and so forth. I mean, it would be a very, it just sounds like a simple point, but it hugely change the world. It would change the world dramatically. Probably more than you, could, than, than you could change the world by any particular thing that any political uh, wing wants to come up with and implement uh, um, they look at all the efforts to improve the environment and so forth. This one thing would would improve the environment. A whole different perspective on what is what is matter and what is its purpose and so on and so forth. You see the world and it should be looked at through a certain lens in terms of how it can help us to pursue a transcendent ideal. Hmm? Instead of looking at it as something to exploit so that we can have more things. Um it would take a lot of the 
power out of consumerism, for example. So it would, it would be a huge, radical transformation of the world. And everybody wouldn't be living here, but everyone would just say, yeah, okay, that's what we're doing here. That's what the whole thing is about. Um, so we're involved in that. In that way, we're really um, self-centered, in a sense. But the sense of self that we are positing is very, is very beautiful. Hmm? And um, very helpful in terms of the problems of the world and the other sense of self that people are struggling for. Um, without that insight, is good to some extent, but often when you press down here, it, you know it, it comes up over here. Hmm. So uh, it's it, it's it's yeah. so to further answer your question. We're in this for ourselves, so that's it's an individual thing in one sense. We each want to become um, enlightened and develop love of God, let's say. Right? Um, so now, um, that said, I think that anything that you want to do, your capacity to do that and pursue that will be enhanced by the association of like-minded people. Even if you're a cave dweller, meditating, if there's another guy not too far away in a cave, you know, it might be nice to, hey, what did you think about? What did you share? What do you experience in your meditation? You know, so um, there are traditions, spiritual traditions, that are more contemplative, kind of based, in a sense, and and focus more directly on detachment from the world. Our tradition focuses in a more positive way on attachment to Krishna and letting go of things that are not favorable for for bhakti. Um, And one of the things that's favorable for bhakti is, is the association of other devotees through whom we get bhakti. So there's much to be said for then living in a, in a community and taking advantage of others who are similarly um, practicing. And um, that can help each of us in our individual uh, path, if you will. So I think that spiritual life is an individual thing in one sense. But, um, but a- anyone seriously pursuing an ego-effacing spiritual reality, I think, would find it um, uplifting to hang out, associate with, talk with other people who are similarly um, uh, engaged in their lives. Um, So, it's both. Um, Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, with regard to our personal practices, we have time where we spend alone, meditating. We have time where we come together as well. So we kind of do both here. Um, and um, It's not just about joining a group and everything's fine. I'm in a group now. You, know, you have to be pursuing your spiritual life in the context of the group. People join different groups, uh, groups for different reasons. People join our group for different reasons. Not always 
as well thought out as we might might like. Um, but to be well thought out, this is an important thought. You're here for your own spiritual advancement. That's what you're doing this for. You want to make spiritual progress. Hmm? And... Um, And that would be good for everybody concerned. So we should be convinced about that. Is, 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 is there anything else that comes to your mind with, from my answer? Yeah, I mean, I could see someone um, coming here, for example, and seeing how we are, as a, as a, a monastic community group, we do things, we come together at different times and so forth, and, and, and themselves identifying more with individual spiritual practice and so forth. Um, but the point I'm making is, I think, difficult to get around, that if you really are involved in that, then, you know, birds of a feather, they flock together or something like that. Uh, like-minded people mm. will... Uh, will help us pursue our ideal. And that's why groups are formed. All kinds of magazines are put out for groups of people and for organizations are formed that like-minded people can get together and, and generate an interest, enthusiasm, and understanding amongst themselves. What else? Another question? Yes. Um, you mentioned the four essential verses of the Bhagavatam in your first answer. I don't know what they are. Could you go through them? They're in the first chapter of my book. They come up in the book. In the first chapter where Krishnadas is speaking about uh, the guru, the principle of the guru, um, he speaks about how the guru is, in a representational sense, is like... If God was the president, the, the guru would be the ambassador or something like that. So he represents. Um, and um, in making that point, he cites a number of verses from the sacred texts. And um, among them are these, these four seed verses of the Bhagavatam. The reason he cites them is twofold. One is that they speak about Brahma at the dawn of creation being enlightened by Krishna from within the heart. And so he, in his context of his argument, he's saying that the guru is external representation of, the, of God in the heart, speaking to us. So he wants to make the point that the guru is tied to divinity. Hmm? And he's trying to bring kind of our attention to this this idea of a saint and to take advantage of such a person. Hmm? And so the divinity of the, of the person he wants to bring our attention to is that we might pay attention. So he cites a number of verses to demonstrate that, that Krishna is the guru. And then in a representational sense, a saint appears, and because the saint is representing Krishna, then he should be treated you know, in a way that, as if he were you know, meeting Krishna or something like that. So, with regard. Hmm? Um, 
naturally, of course, that person will will foster regard hmm, and generate it without without trying, just being the person that they are. But nonetheless, he he's making this this point, and so he cites the four verses of Krishna speaking to Brahma at the dawn of creation, to the ninth chapter of the second canto of the Bhagavatam. But another reason that he cites it is the whole philosophy is there in a nutshell. And this is at the very, very first verse of his book. Hmm? And so he doesn't say that, but that's what I bring out there. It's a reason that he put these verses here besides the simple point that he's, he's making. Hmm? And so they should be explored. And then we go into them and explore them at some length. So you'll, it's, uh, it's in the later part of the first chapter. Four verses. There's actually six, but there, there, two of them are inter, kind of introductory, and then then the four verses come. And Brahma asks some questions before that, so you didn't get to that part yet. Yeah, so you're gonna read it over again. <laughs> Those are it's called the Chatur Shloki. Chatur means four. Shloki means verse. So four essential verses of the Bhagavatam. And you can see if what we brought out that, that they speak about. The, um, but the different shaktis of Krishna, the form of Krishna, the process. They speak about the sambandha, abhideya, prayojan, the, the conceptual orientation, the activity that comes out of that, which is the way and the goal, the fruit, and they're all there in the verses and and so forth. So, but it's worth another book on on the subject exclusively. Yeah, that's. Uh, it's uh, there's, a, there's a lot, a lot there. So you know, you have, in the Bhagavatam, you have many, many beginnings. This is like one of the beginnings. Krishna speaks the verses to Brahma. Brahma speaks them to Narada. It's all over the place in the book. You know the way it, the way it works. And then in the first canto, you know, Brahma's Narada speaking it to Vyasa. Hmm. And. Uh, of course, Vyasa is giving it to Sukadev. Sukadev is giving it to Prakshit Maharaj. It's been passed along. So, different uh, different beginnings to the Bhagavatam, but this is the seed. What else? Have you enjoyed your the visit here? It's yeah, it's a nice place, peaceful place. Yeah. Okay. So you were mentioning that his teachings came about in a very different era, a very different time. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a part of human nature that does not change and that these teachings speak to that, the causes of our suffering? Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Yes, yes. They are relevant for all time, the essential teachings. But what I was saying is that the essential teachings are going to be presented with a certain packaging in different times in human history. Hmm? So if I'm going to speak about it, I'm going to draw analogies from things that are happening in the world today, in our lives, in our culture. Now in India, for example, it's a different culture, so you can find analogies drawn from Indian culture to make certain philosophical points that we have no experience of. If I use an example of a camel doing this, we don't have camels over here, you know, except in some places. But anyway, so... Uh, so there's a packaging to the essential teaching. And um, 
that involves, as I say, a lot of times taking into currents of thought of the time and and presenting it in a certain way and so forth. And some of those things can obscure the essential teachings. That's why you need teachers generation after generation to draw out the essence that does apply to human nature in all, all for all times, in all places. Some things just don't change, right? Hmm. And uh, they need to be addressed. And like one of the core things, for example, the core logic of the Vedanta is that, well, the world is about suffering, as the Buddha said. Hmm. And the cause of the suffering is the, the thirst for, for things and our attachment to them. So as soon as you want something, you've got to suffer. You've got to get up. You've got to go spend some effort. You've got to get it. And as soon as you get it, you've got to worry that it's going to be lost. And then you have to suffer the fact that it will be lost in due course of time. You know, you just bought a new car. I better not use that example. You just bought a new house, you know, and after some time, oh, look, the paint is chipping over here. Next thing you know, it's on the market, you know, and you, know, you want nothing more than to sell it. And 20 years before, you wanted nothing more than to buy it, right? So, so the point is, that this kind of core point is that, that all of our troubles in life come from attachment and desire, hmm? desire in relation to the objective world. And that doesn't change. Hmm? We can cover it up and we can... Uh, in, in so many ways, but um, and then if then if you let go of the desire, then then um, you know if you if you want everybody wants enduring happiness. Nobody can have enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure. So there's an example of something that's true at all times. Now you could say, well, Swami, we're working on it. We're freezing bodies right now. Hmm. We're developing, you know, uh, medicines and and, and and whatnot for uh, preserving the cells and combating old age. Hmm. And uh, our objective, obviously, is immortality, and, uh, and that doesn't change. Hmm. Everybody wants immortality. <laughs> that's the point. Whether that's a reasonable way to go about it is is questionable because I mean. How are you going to ever attain human immortality, even if you could stop aging? You can't stop people from slipping on bananas on the stairs and you know killing themselves, right? It's, so there's just there's just no way around it. We had a talk yesterday about this. It was, a, it was based on a story of a guy who wanted to live forever, so he asked uh, one of the gods uh, for. That and he said, "Well, this, this that's not possible." Hmm. And he said, "Well, then I don't want to die at night." Okay, I'll give you that benediction. I don't want to die in the day. Okay, I don't want to die in the land or the sea. Okay, I don't want to die at the hands of an animal or a human. Or, he went through all these, you know, balances, checks and balances, and thought that he had beat the system. And then the story goes on and shows how he died at dusk instead of day or night. You know, and, and everything was counteracted by by the <laughs> reality of the world. So, um, so yeah, um, there's, there's an impermanence. There's an impermanence that we resist. And the reason we have resistance to impermanence is because 
we're not impermanent. If we were also impermanent, we would have no resistance to the impermanence that we see in the world, that we experience. Nothing lasts forever. Hmm? But who's saying that? That's the point. Who's perceiving that, that nothing lasts forever? It's not the things that don't last forever that are perceiving that. Someone who's apart from that is perceiving that. If I'm part of the change that's going on, then I don't perceive it. If I'm standing here and looking at an airplane going across the sky, I can say, wow, look how fast that's going. You could be in the airplane and feel like I'm just sitting there because you're part of the change. Hmm? You're moving. You don't know it. Hmm? The world is in flux. Everything's transforming. Hmm? We're not part of the transformation. That's why we can observe it. If we were part of the transformation, we wouldn't observe it. Who would we be? We wouldn't be. We'd be just things in transformation. So who's standing back and saying, hey, things are impermanent? It doesn't come from impermanence. So our resistance to impermanence, our perception of the impermanence, hmm, derives from the fact that, that we are not impermanent. And so if we try to become permanent, realize our permanence, by trying to make the impermanent permanent, that's like, that's not a good idea. Rather, realize that there's someone who's observing the impermanence. That's different than the impermanence. That person's already in, immortal. There's the ever-changing material world, and we're observing the change. Now, of course, you die, so people look like, well, look like you're not there anymore. But, I mean, you, you, let me ask you a question. Have you had any experience of not existing? Of course not. People may say at some point you didn't exist, but it's not your experience. Hmm? People will say at some point you don't exist, you no longer exist, but all we're seeing is, all we're observing is that, that bodies change, matter transforms, matter transforms all the time. Hmm? And there's someone who can observe that, and they're separate from that. Hmm? So if we want, want permanence, immortality, whatever, eternity, then... We should look to the observer rather than the impermanence that he or she observes and try to make that permanent. That's a folly. That's freezing your body, you know, <laughs> with your inheritance and with the hope that they're going to inject it with some chemicals in the future and you're going to just come back to life in 2050 and wish you hadn't. And who knows? So this is the myth of modern science. The myth of modern science now is... Same as any religion. Well, of course, it's not necessarily a myth because we're looking at it in a different way. We're pursuing the same thing in a different way. The myth of modern science is immortality. Immortality through uh, manipulation of, 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 of matter. Hmm? Immortality. So that you can attain robotic heaven. This is the materialistic, scientific materialism, let's call it. The idea is there is... You are just a machine. That's what you are. We're all machines. Hmm? Sophisticated machines. Working on artificial intelligence to make other machines. And that's what we are. We're just matter. We're just machines. 
And um, so we're trying to perfect the machines. And, and now, you know, they're, they're going to start cloning humans and, um, and trying to make the perfect machine, after all, that doesn't die. So the myth of modern science is that instead of dying, you can go to robotic heaven. You can be a robot forever. Now you question, maybe I don't want to go there. Maybe I don't want to be a robot. Maybe I'm not a robot. <laughs> maybe I have some resistance to that. Oh, no, that's just religious superstition. You shouldn't have any resistance to that. We're going to show you that there's nothing, there's nothing there except matter, randomly interacting. And, of course, they're not able to do that for good reason. So... So the myth of modern science is 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 is, 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 is the promise of salvation, <laughs> salvation from from dying and going to robotic heaven. We can all be robots and live forever. And what are, what are we going to do? What, are we going to stop fighting with one another too? Anyway, it's a, it's a folly. So the better is is to is to think the reason. But I have resistance to impermanence because I'm permanent. What am I? Am I just physical matter? Does experience arise out of non-experience? Matter is non-experiential. At some point it's going to combine in such a way as to start saying, ouch. Yeah, I mean, does that make sense? At some point the floor is going to say, could you step a little lighter? Goodness. Doesn't that sound silly and magical? Modern science, they sometimes they say well, religion is magical thinking. That's magical thinking. To think that the floor one day is just going to say, hey, could you walk somewhere else? That's what it's saying when we say that physical matter somehow combines together to start saying, I am, and I like this, and I don't like that. Well, we'll, put it to, we'll give you all the parts, you put it together. <laughs> We'll see if you can create an experiential reality. Hmm. We'll, we'll bet on that. Hmm. Experience doesn't arise out of non-experience. Hmm. So, yes, anyway, there are truths that are there for all all time. And, and that's the core idea. These, these are not old ideas, in a sense. They're essential ideas. And when we talk about what is consciousness... What does matter? What we're saying is, what's out there, and who's looking at it? What's out there goes here. What's here, and who's who's and who's observing it? That's the whole what life's about. Who's observing, and what's what's to be observed? Nothing's changed. These are the, these are the questions of life, <laughs> and so these texts talk about that. Yes. What else? What's the time? Okay, good enough. Nice to speak with you all. Shishigornitanandagi jai, kurbakta vindaki jai, kurbakta vindaki jai.